Thank you. Alyssa, let's go ahead and turn our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 13. If you are new to Sovereign Grace, and one of the things you'll quickly learn about us is we love the Bible. We believe this is God's Word. We believe this is breathed out by God, every single word of it. And because it's breathed out by God, we believe it is live, it is active, it is sharper than a double-edged sword. And when we preach it and when we listen to it, the man of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, tells us, can be complete and equipped for every good work. And so we love to preach through books in the Bible primarily. Rather than pastors just hitting on different topics that they may feel a burden for, which tend to be the same things if that's the way you preach. We just like to take books of the Bible and read through them, take time to read them, to explain them, and to apply them. And a big part of the reason why we do that is because week after week after week, that is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus did. See, that can be a game changer for a lot of people. Because for a lot of people, when we think, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's the God that's constantly preaching in towns, in fields, with crowds. That's true. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But on the Sabbath, every single week, he's in the synagogue. And every single week, he's opening God's Word and reading it and explaining it. And why? So when we catch up with Jesus this morning in Luke chapter 13, that is exactly where we see him and doing once again. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath preaching to the people of God. And this is the word of the Lord. We're going to read Luke chapter 13 verses 10 to 21. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and heal, and not the Sabbath. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath tie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And all not this woman, the daughter of Abraham, who was Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said therefore, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in his branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, until it was all leavened. You make a note this morning, I've called this message a great day for a miracle. Let's pray and we'll get into it together. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, as we gather around this scene today, Lord, we, we want to recognize that we're enjoying a scene similar today. As they gather with the people of God to hear your word preached, that's what we're doing now in this morning. So Lord, would we be transported as if we are there? sitting in the synagogue on this Sabbath day listening to you. 
Holy Spirit, would you make that possible for all that you do? Would you take our hearts to the scene? Would we have eyes of faith to see what is taking place? Would our lives be changed as we go? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are certain days, I think, in all of our lives that we simply never forget. I still remember the day vividly, the day that Princess Diane died. I was about 19 years old. I was in Portsmouth at the time with a group of my friends, and we got out of bed, and all over the news was the fact that Princess Diana had died. And no one believed me. We're like, this is a joke. So we went outside, and we realized everybody is in on the same joke, allegedly. And everywhere was somewhere. It was a Sunday morning, if I recall, and we were on holidays, and yet there was nobody doing anything. Most of the shops stayed shut. No one was serving anything. Everybody was just really sober. I want to take a place to a lady who people did call the people's princess. I still remember that vividly, who where I was and who I was. I remember the day I left school. I still remember it thinking, this is the last time I get my blazer on. This is the last time I get my uniform on. And I still remember walking out after that last exam for the final time. I just thinking, that's it. I remember touching the school gates as I walked out, just thinking, I will never see you again. I still remember it vividly. It was just such a big deal in my life. I loved school, and finally it's just done. I still remember the day this church had was begun. Father's Day, 2010. We're meeting in Normanist Boys High School. It was terrible in every way. The school was shocking. I mean, I remember preaching to see all these headmasters' faces all the way around the room. I mean, sort of big artwork on the side. I'm like, this is like, this is terrible in every way. Some of your faces were in the crowd on that day. It was a special day that I will never forget. I'll never forget certain interactions I had on that day. There are certain days in our lives that we simply never forget. And this Sabbath day, everyone present in this text right here in Luke chapter 13 would have been one of those days. This would have been one of those days that they've been talking about for months and years to come. This is one of those days that we're telling their children about and their grandchildren about because this was the day when they got to see just how glorious Jesus and his kingdom really is. This is a day that would change their lives when they come toe-to-toe with Jesus and they see his healing power, the power of his kingdom, be unveiled before their eyes. This was an unforgettable day for them. And the reason why this is here in our text is because God, in his grace, wants it to be an unforgettable day for us. He wants us to see what's going on here and be affected by it to the very core of who we really are. So I have three points this morning. Number one, the kingdom beheld. Number two, the kingdom rejected. And then number three, the kingdom's victory. But as I come to this text, I really come to it with just one hope. And it's the hope that for all of us in the room, we get to see afresh this morning just how glorious Jesus and his kingdom really is. When you see all that is taking place on this day, you get to realize why it was so incredible. Because the scene really is incredible as we see Jesus and his incredible kingdom. Three points then, and here's the first. Number one, the kingdom beheld. See, in verse 10, we do discover that Jesus is once again teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Which synagogue? No idea, doesn't tell us. Where is it? Absolutely no idea. But what we do know 
is that while he is preaching, or maybe before he is preaching, or after he is preaching, at some point during the service, a woman catches his eye. And this is what he sees in verse 10 and 11. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. As Jesus is preaching, maybe before or after, there is a woman in the congregation who catches his gaze, and she catches his gaze because she has got a chronic disease that has left her bent over double. This is a lady that you would have seen walking around like this each and every Sunday. Her life is being lived with her face constantly in humility before God. Her face is constantly facing the ground because she cannot straighten her back. And the only time that she may come out from that position is by moving her head to the side, likely in pain, to try and catch wind of what is taking place around It would appear, as we examine the text, that this disease has happened because of some former satanic activity in her life. Maybe she was possessed years earlier, maybe she was just influenced by an evil spirit, we're not clear. But what we do know is this poor woman has walked like this for 18 years of her life. It is a tragic thing to see. And we need to notice in the way this is written, it would appear that not only is this image tragic, it's even more tragic because it would appear that this is a lady that is well known in the church. See, no one is surprised by this woman's presence. No one is wondering, why are you here this morning? No one's asking a question at all. It would appear that potentially she is known to them. So get in on the text. It would be like Heaven or Celia or Emma, just one of the ladies in that church who we dearly love. Over the last 18 years, since this church has existed, you've noticed every week she's getting lower and lower and lower. Every week she's turning up to wrench her face to the side and to to worship God and to honor the Lord and sit around His Word. See, it gets a little more personal when you start to put names on it. That's what's happening. One of their own has been in great pain for 18 years. And on this day, as Jesus preaches in this synagogue, she catches his gaze. It's beautiful. Because on this day, everything is going to change for this lady. Give me verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Oh my, what a wonderful scene, do you not think? For 18 years, a friend of the family in this local church has been bent over double. Jesus sees her, he brings her forward. He tells her in a moment, woman, you are free from your disability. Everything is about to change for you. You've had this crippling disease for 18 years, but not a moment longer. And then he laid his hands on her, and he straightens her back. She stands before him. What does she do? Well, what everybody would do in this moment. She begins to glorify God. 
And then when Luke writes, glorify God, I submit to you that's a very short version of what happened over a very long time at this moment. We've seen other women be healed in this text already. And what you can imagine in your mind's eye is this woman just standing straight and erupting in praise and song, probably dancing around the room. 18 years she's been facing the ground. Now she's standing upright before the Lord and her life would never be the same again. You can only imagine the joy that would have been in her eyes in this moment. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? You would have been talking about this for the rest of your years. You wouldn't have been able to wait until Testimony Sunday at the end of the year when she stands and lets people know, I was healed this year. This would have been a precious moment in the story of this synagogue. Because this was indeed a divine display of kingdom power. The kingdom of God had drawn near in this moment in the person and work of Jesus and the power of that kingdom had been demonstrated in this glorious woman. But what an appropriate place for this power to have occurred. See, I don't want us to miss it. You see, Jesus' ministry had indeed begun in a synagogue. That's what we see in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is preaching in Nazareth. And he's preaching and he's proclaiming what he's come to do. He's just been baptized. He's been tempted in the wilderness. What's next? He's preaching in a synagogue in Nazareth. This is what he shares. He takes the scroll and he unwinds it to Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. And this is what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he proclaims before their very eyes, and as he takes their seat, everybody in the room is aware, you preach different to anybody else I've heard. You speak real different to anybody else I've ever heard in my life. You preach and teach with authority. And as he takes his seat and he realizes everybody's eyes are still on him, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It is a dramatic moment. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's saying the spirit of the living God has fallen upon me. I have been anointed to proclaim the good news. I've been sent to proclaim liberty, to heal the blind, to straighten the, the bent over, to give ears to those that can't hear. Hope has come. Heaven has come. The kingdom has come. And at this moment, some months on from this adventure, that's what's taking place right here. He's still back in the synagogue. Luke chapter 4 is the first time you hear him preaching in the synagogue. Luke chapter 11 is the last time you see him preaching in the synagogue. He's still doing the same thing. Setting captives free. Kent Hughes says this about the scene. He says, This healing of the woman was a taste of the divine kingdom power that Christ has worked throughout history. But Jesus sees in us need, and even more significantly, our deepest inward deformity. If we could see others as Jesus sees them, we would see dead people staring with fixed and dilated eyes, indistinguishable on the outside from the truly alive. And we would see the blind man and the man. But when Jesus says, you are free, it is then that glazed eyes flicker open a redeeming light, with redeeming light, 
and lives twisted by sin stand straight and tall. Oh, what a happy discovery that is, don't you think? When Jesus walks up, he says, you are free. Lives twisted by sin stand straight and tall. That is what he does. That's what he still does to this day, does he not? He opens blind eyes and heals people. He heals the spiritual reality of their hearts. And 2,000 years ago, right here, he's demonstrating the glorious power of the kingdom by healing this woman. When you love to been there, I would pay money to go back to time to actually witness this and feel this with them. You would assume that surely everybody in the congregation on this day is ecstatic about what is taking place. But they're not. Not all. And that's my second point. But to the kingdom rejected. Look at me at verse 14. <clears throat> But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Oh my goodness. What a religious douchebag this guy is. Do you not think? What planet is this dude on? This woman has just been dramatically and incredibly healed. This loved woman. Everybody is ecstatic about what is taking place, and then this guy is like, oh, steady on, rule the rules, wrong day of the week. <laughs> sit down, everyone, sit down. You should be ashamed of your meal today. Shocking. <laughs> it is ridiculous what is taking place in this moment. It is shocking that this guy is responding like that. But it shouldn't surprise us. The Pharisees, which no doubt the ruler of the synagogue would have been, they are the religious Karens of the day. They prided themselves on personal piety, on holy living, and really they demanded then that others do exactly the same. These dudes are the religious police of the day. You have to understand that by now, by the time Jesus is preaching, they have got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extra biblical laws. That's what the oral law is, or the Mishnah that the Pharisees would go around with. They would have hundreds and hundreds of extra biblical laws. And so now what they're doing in this instance, they're calling Jesus out on the Sabbath one. You know, remember the, the commandment? Remember the Sabbath and keep holy before the Lord. Well, it doesn't seem to have broken that. But he had to broken some of the 39 extra biblical laws that they all made up to ensure that we're not break the Sabbath. And they're like, oh, hang on, one of them is we can't go, we should not be healing people on the Sabbath. Everybody sit down, wrong day of the week. It's absolutely insane. And Jesus calls me out on it. He says this, you hypocrites. I love that. That is just one of those moments where Jesus goes toe to toe with the ruler of the synagogue. And notice it is plural. He's aware you don't just represent yourself at this moment, you represent all the Pharisees in the room. And this is my assessment of you all. You are hypocrites. See, as Jesus has already made clear earlier in the text, these people, these Pharisees, Quite frankly, they should know better. They claim to love God with all their heart. But they should understand that to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and strength means you love your neighbor like yourself. Your neighbor in this moment is getting healed and you're going to pick me up on this the wrong day of the week? You hypocrites, you missed the point. You even missed the point of what the Sabbath is for. A day of rest to enjoy the reality that the kingdom of God has drawn near. 
And then the kingdom of God draws near. You're going to pick us up? That is the wrong day of the week. And Jesus has already told us in Matthew 15, verse 8, Though these people honor me with their lips, their hearts are far from me. You claim to love the Lord. You claim to love your neighbor. You missed the point. And he calls them out. And so he says this in verses 15 and 16. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And all not this woman a daughter of Abraham? Who's Satan bound for 18 years being loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? He calls them out. You guys are hypocrites. I mean, think about this for a moment. I mean, in, in this moment, it'd be fair to say that this synagogue ruler has led with his chin, and Jesus, full of grace and truth, is having to land one. He's going after this. And what he is doing in this moment is he responds with an argument from the lesser to the greater. And his argument is this, listen, you're saying this is the wrong day of the week to heal a woman, and yet on this very same day of the week you'll get your donkeys and your ox. You'll let them drink. In fact, you'll go, whoa, my poor goat, it needs water, so I should go look after my goat, and I should take it here, give me a drink. You do that with your goats and your ox. But then a woman who's made in the image of God, a daughter of Abraham, gets healed by the almighty hand of God, and that's all? You hypocrites. You say you love the Lord, but your hearts are far from Him. You say you love the Lord your God, and you just seek to honor His word, and yet quite clearly you don't even know His word. You just keep rules. And you totally miss the point of the very heart of God Himself. They are indeed hypocrites. And when Jesus calls them out on that reality, we see then the effect of this response in verse 17. It says, As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Once Jesus uses the H word, then there is a dividing point in the room in this moment. His adversaries on one side of the room are indeed put to shame. They are licking their wounds after Jesus has gone after them. And what are they meant to say? They've been found wanting in this moment. They are put to shame. Sadly, it is not putting to shame which drives them to repentance. It is putting to shame that drives them to even more angst with Jesus that would ultimately lead to them being on the cross some months later. Even now, they're going to start plotting against him. We want you dead. How dare you come into our synagogues and speak to us like that? You're out here. And yet on the other side of the room, there are, there are people everywhere rejoicing at all Jesus had done. I want you to see there is a divide in the room in this moment. On one side, some of his adversaries being put to shame. On the other side are the people of God rejoicing. Likely led by this woman who walked into the room like this, but is now still dancing around the room. She doesn't go, oh, what's going on? She's just too busy rejoicing. I've been healed. The kingdom of God has come near. My life has been radically changed. And all the people around her, all the people in the room, start to rejoice. That's right. Because they're aware in this moment the kingdom of God has surely come 
truth is, when it comes to that, the kingdom of God, what we're seeing in this moment, in this synagogue, is just the mere seeds of it. Just the start of it. And what you're seeing in this room, through these different Pharisees, is the reality that this kingdom is going to be opposed. It ain't going to grow in it. But knowing this, it seems. Jesus just want to give them and us hope. And I want to come for this kingdom. And that's my third point. The kingdom's victory. So my friends, here's the harsh reality about the kingdom of God. The harsh reality about the kingdom of God is it will be opposed. Any growth in the kingdom of God will be opposed. It will be opposed by Satan. The one who for 18 years has had this woman bent over. Any advance of the kingdom of God will be opposed by Satan himself. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, verse 10, For he comes to kill and rob and destroy the people, but I come that they may have life. Well, this one is still prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking who to devour. He hates the kingdom of God. He hates any advancement of the kingdom of God. He hates everything that Jesus stands for. There's no doubt then, that the kingdom of God will be opposed by Satan at every turn. Likewise, there's no doubt that the kingdom of God will be opposed by the world. And we must wise up to this and realize this. That's why 1 John chapter 2, we're instructed to do not love the world. It's a fact, it's a command. He's not talking there about the people of the world. No, we're to love the people of the world, but to tell them about Jesus. But we're not to love the ways of the world, or the philosophy of the world, or the thinking of the world. Why? Because increasingly it is anti-Christ. I mean, do we not live as a congregation in a strange time in history, where after 2,000 years of understanding we have two genders, now we have hundreds. And no one's allowed to say otherwise, otherwise you're bigots. Have they ever not, not got no clothes on? I mean, this is ridiculous news. We live in a time where marriage has nothing to do with God. It's just whatever you want to be. A lady of France recently married the Eiffel Tower. What up? Love is love. The world is going mad. And it's the air we breathe. That whatever I feel must be true. Whatever I desire must be fact. The world is going crazy. And so we're instructed in Scripture. Do not love the world. Be on your guard. Be careful. The kingdom of God will be opposed by Satan. It will be opposed by the world. Here's the point. There's also no doubt that the kingdom of God will grow and ultimately be victorious. It's a fact. How do we know it? Verses 18 through 21. Pay attention. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. I love this. There's two tiny little parables that are packed with power and influence. The first parable is about the power of a seed. He's talking about a mustard seed. 
It is the smallest seed known to man. It's about the size of a full stop made by a pen. I drew, drew one of my hands one. Did you? No, exactly. Because it's tiny. It's absolutely minute. I thought about trying to get some seeds to bring them out. What a waste of time. Because you can't see them. That's the point. They're just tiny little things. But what he's helping you see here is when they grow, when you plant these seeds and you water them, these seeds actually can become a tall and mighty tree that even, even the birds of the nation find their nests in. Something that starts totally small will ultimately grow and be a mighty tree before the Lord. He then tells us about the power of leaven. See, when you have leaven or yeast, as we often call it now, to dough, it very easily and readily produces large amounts of bread. And it cannot help itself. It cannot be stopped. When you add yeast or leaven to dough, it will... Oh, a lot of stuff's going to go on. So what he's talking about here is if you imagine a lady then adding three measures, which is just three small cups of yeast to a small amount of dough. You know, the commentators, the guys smart with these, say that three, three measures of yeast to dough would produce enough bread for over a hundred men to eat that day. What they are painting a picture of is adding yeast to dough. Let's see if this dough just grow. Thank you, give it out. 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 What starts small is going to grow. And what Jesus is helping us see here is such is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will start small and somewhat discreetly, but grow it will. And one day it will house people from every tribe and language and nation, and victorious then it will no doubt be. And what a happy discovery that is, do you not think? The kingdom of God did indeed start 2,000 years ago, because it was ushered in by Jesus himself. When he's preaching to the crowds in the fields or in the towns or the synagogue, what we're seeing in embryonic mustard seed form is the kingdom of God beginning. The power of his kingdom coming to earth. That's why people are getting healed. That's why blind people can see. Dead people can start to hear. Lame people can start to walk. The kingdom of God has come near. And people all around him are getting saved. They're putting their faith in him as the Lord and Savior. And in that moment, they're forgiven of their sin and they're adopted into the family of God and they're assured that heaven is their home. This kingdom of God, although small and embryonic, is already beginning to grow. And my friends, it's that same kingdom of God that has grown over the last 2,000 years that we now get to be a part of, has it not? That's why we're all sitting here from different languages and nations, worshipping the same king. Because that kingdom over the last 2,000 years has been growing and growing and growing. And one day soon, Jesus will return and that kingdom will be consummated. And that will be consummated because soon enough that kingdom will be fully growing. That kingdom that started like a mustard will one day become a mighty tree. And those birds that he's talking about here is imagery from Ezekiel 17 and Daniel 4. And in both cases, it talks about these birds being the nations of the earth that will come to worship him as Lord and Savior from every tribe and language and nation. His point is this kingdom of God, although it starts small, will one day be glory. My friends, right now, what we get to do is we get to live between the already and the not yet, don't we? The kingdom of God has already arrived, been ushered in through Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection. 
But it hasn't been consummated yet. That's, that's only the end. The day when he comes back, the people from every tribe, language, and nation will worship him. We get to live somewhere along this line. And what he wants to help us see and give us great faith for this morning is the wonderful reality that though the kingdom of God will no doubt be greatly opposed, greatly opposed by Satan, greatly opposed by the world, grow and ultimately victorious it will be. Like yeast in dog, you can't stop it. Like a mustard seed, it's just going to keep growing. Satan may try, he's no competition for the risen king of God. The world may oppose, but they are no, they are no match for the mighty Aslan of heaven. Because when his roar comes, that must have seems just going to keep growing and growing and growing. Folks, I think this helps us today. How many times have we said, even over the last few years, man, it's just, we live in such an awkward time, such an awful time. How bad is it going to be when our kids sort of inherit this kingdom? It's going to be so awful. Is it, is it like the world's going to come in?
Paul tells us about it in Romans 10 verse 9. He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. My friends, that's the only way to get back into the kingdom of God, is confessing your sin before the Lord. It's believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, believing that you need to take him as saviour, and confessing him as Lord, believing he needs to be your king. And when we do that, when we put our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, the Bible is clear, in that moment you will be saved. Boom. The doors of heaven open and in you go. Have you earned it? Negative. Do you deserve it? Absolutely not. But has Jesus' death earned it for you? Yes, it has. And when you put your faith in Him as your Lord and Saviour, boldly you can come. And welcome home you will My friends, I want to urge you that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, put your faith in Him as your Lord and Saviour today and be entered in Him to this great kingdom of God. If on the other hand, though, you're a believer, you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, which is most of you, how do you respond? How you respond, my friends, is by doing all you can as you live between the already and the not yet to tell others about this great kingdom of God. Will you be opposed? Absolutely. Don't be shocked. It's going to be the norm. Will you be opposed by Satan if you seek to share the gospel? Absolutely you will. Will the world love you for it? Probably not. Will his kingdom be victorious? Will many people come to know him as Lord and Savior? Yes, they will. Who's going to tell them? We have to tell them. You know, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus has been preaching in Capernaum. He's been in the synagogue, and quite frankly, they all want him to stay. Their premise is listen, we've had such a great time with you, this has been awesome. Just stay here forever. Jesus tells them in verse 43, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. He knew he couldn't stay. Because they haven't just come just for you. There are many people in many towns that don't know me as Lord and Savior. I've got more words to do. And that's what I've been sent for. Well, my friends, who's going to tell them now? Who's going to tell them in Sydney? Who's going to tell them in Canberra? Who's going to tell him in all the different places? Well, let's look at who he's been sent. Who he's been sent? You. In John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Listen, friends, will you be appalled? Yes, get used to it. But is it what you've been called to? A thousand percent yes. As the Father sent me, so now I send you. And should we go with faith? Absolutely. Why? Because the kingdom of God is like a mother. That's been growing over centuries after century after century, and it's going to grow into a mighty tree that will house all the nations of the earth. Should we grow in faith? Yes. Because the gospel is powerful. 
and can change people's lives in the moment. And so friends, if you're here today and you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to do all you can to tell other people about this great kingdom of God. Tell your friends and your family. Tell your associates. Tell your neighbors. Tell the strangers around you that you get to know in random situations. And tell them the faith. Know that God is with you. And the kingdom of God that you declare is still growing. Just me. He wants that to be a part What an unforgettable day this was for them. Day that would change their life. I pray it would be an unforgettable day for us as well. May we hear God's word. May we hear it. And may many people come and enter into the kingdom of God as a result. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you that by your mercy and grace someone at some time has told us about the kingdom of God. Someone has communicated the glories of the gospel to us that we then responded to. Oh Lord, would you help us now to be the communicators to us? Would you help us not to grow weary in doing good? Would you help us to keep giving out these invites for the great marriage supper of the Lamb to come? A supper where there will be people from every tribe and language and nation worshipping you around the throne of heaven. Lord, all we've got to do is keep giving out the invites. Oh Lord, you help us to do that. Oh Lord, I pray with many people in our country come to know you as Lord and Savior as a result. Lord, would you take these invites that often come through our mumbling and mumbling explanation of you. And would you take them and do something divine? Would they grow like a mustard seed? great satisfaction in people's hearts. Would eyes be open and ears be unplugged and backs be strengthened by the glorious power of the gospel. Lord, help us to be faithful to you.